Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Background Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, joining you from the National Capital Region here in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> Excuse me. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from the Big Apple. She is the former attorney for then-presidential candidate Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton in the 2016 campaign. She's now a lawyer in the great state of New York and the Garden State of New Jersey. She is Sharmila Chari. Hey, Sharmila. Hey, Justin. How's it going? And and joining me from the windy city of Chicago, she is the former on-air talent for NBC and ABC News, former executive producer in Washington, D.C. for the Today Show on NBC, and now media producer out in the Windy City. She is the one we know as Laura Chavez. Hello, Laura. Hello. And joining us from Washington, D.C., he is the longtime political operative for the Democratic Party. He is former Biden political operative and longtime political analyst. He is the one we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin Russell. How are you this day? Oh, it's a fantastic day. And it's a really great day. Back from the hinterlands and regions unknown, our long-departed fact-checker, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Welcome back, Alan. Hey, thanks. Great to be back. And, of course, Russia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere in the mountain regions of Tennessee is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Hey, we've got a full show today, but let's start off with the latest buzz coming out of Republican politics. Uh, in case you haven't heard, there is a possible civil war brewing inside the Republican Party. In one corner, you have the Koch brothers, longtime Republican financier in open source or closed source money, depending on how you look at it. Multi-billionaires who have contributed over $300 million over the past few election cycles. In the other corner, we have the, the de facto head of party, the president, Donald J. Trump, who in fact is now calling out the Koch brothers as being, dare I say, even weak or non-essential to Republican Party politics. It has gotten ugly to the point where the Koch brothers have now decided that they are going to look at politicians in all political races, regardless of political affiliation. They're going to do what's in the best interest of the people that work for Koch Industries. According to Charles Koch, Uh, He said he would work with Democrats who share his values. He also said that, quote, I don't care what initials are in front of or after somebody's name. I hear many more politicians who would embrace and have the courage to run on a platform that embraces the values he espouses uh, and is willing to 
basically go to bat for uh, issues that Coke, that are important to Charles Koch. That being said, let me start off. Alan, it's been a while since we've talked to you. Let me start off with you. Uh, we, we knew that there was tension between the Koch camp and Camp Trump. We knew that there wasn't a lot of love in the election. Are we seeing something that has been long brewing? And is this the beginning of what could be a civil war for the heart of the GOP? You know, all very good questions. Um, it, it's important to, I think, have some understanding of of the Koch brothers. Uh, and now it's really Charles because his, his brother, one brother has stepped aside. Um, they're basically libertarians. Now, that has tended to move them in a very big way to the Republican camp. Um, and I think they've been in the past, uh, although they gave some money to Democrats, you know, in the in the range of some hundreds of thousands of dollars, they were giving hundreds of millions to Republicans. So, ninety nine percent of their money has historically gone to Republicans. But they are driven then and now, and this is the cause of the breach, more by ideology and principle than by pure politics. So, that's what is outraged. Uh, the president, um, first of all, the, 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 the Charles Koch has been quite critical of the administration's policy on immigration and on trade and tariffs. Those are two things near and dear to the heart of this president. So he's furious that someone would be so bold uh, as to be critical of him for those policies. Fortunately, the president doesn't care about Alan Moore, Ken Carradine, other Republicans who, have, who, who speak against those things on this show. We, we don't give hundreds of millions of dollars, so we operate underneath the radar. But, but he's furious, and he's got this style, the president does, of just attacking, blistering people with whom he disagrees – and unfortunately, um, uh, he has this hold over uh, his base, um, and it almost doesn't matter what he says. If he says it, they believe it, um, and, uh, and, that, and that gives him uh, all of this power. Now, your, your question about is this, is this going to be a breach, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the Kochs, unlike other uh, elected politicians, they're not elected to anything. And if, and if the base is offended, uh, whereas uh, senators and congressmen and governors and, and, and state legislative candidates have to be careful because they don't want to get crossways uh, with the president and, and watch it do them harm, the Kochs could care less about criticism uh, from the president. Um, it's not what drives them, and their future is not in any way derivative uh, of their, their support by the president. It's going to be fascinating to, to watch. Um, right. There are plenty of people who, who agree with the Kochs and who stay off to the side and keep their heads down because they don't want to come under attack. Um, and the Kochs are going to provide, uh, provide them some cover. I have no idea whether the president will decide that this is a, a, a good thing to, uh, to ride with. He's got plenty of other issues 
that that seem to yeah. me to be more dominant right. and more important. And it's not like the Kochs have abandoned the Republican Party. Right. Charmelette, I mean, this to me sounds like an opportunity for the Democrats to capitalize on the practical Republican thinking of the Koch brothers and the Koch network. Can they cap, can they, can they engage and get a peace treaty with the Koch brothers without alienating their own base? So it's, that's what I think is hilariously ironic about this entire situation. You know, Democrats have spent the last 15 years at least railing against the Kochs, railing against the influence of money in politics, railing against Citizens United, and holding up the Koch brothers and the Koch network as sort of the prime violator of, you know, our American democracy by just throwing money at, you know, to get these right-wing fringe candidates elected. That's been the Democrats' narrative for years and years. So the fact that they that the Kochs now think that they can turn around and give money to Democrats, and there are going to be some moderate Democrats and Democrats in red states like the Heidi Heitkamp's, the Joe Manchin's, who you know, for whom accept, you know accepting this money and being welcomed into this network might not be a bad thing. But for this rising crop of progressive candidates, for them to then turn around and say, oh, and by the way, we're teaming up with the Koch brothers, is just Charmala. completely ludicrous. Charmala, it almost seems as ludicrous as you know, the president of the United States you know, cozying up to the former KGB operative who's now the president of Russia. But yeah, crazier but, things but have Charmala, happened. Charmala, I, I want to point out, you know, when, when, we, when we start talking about Koch network money, uh, there have been there have been recipients of Coke Network money, including uh, former Senator Mark Pryor, former Senator Mary Landrew, and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Are they going to have to atone for that sin of taking Coke money, or is are they going to be the bridge to bring them into more mainstream America? So I think that right now the Cokes have a branding problem with Democrats. If, if that is their real goal, right? Are they going to be funding Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Most likely not. But the truth is that to the progressive side, the Koch brand name is associated with money in politics, with right wing, and with, you know, sort of corruption generally. And so the idea that advertising Koch support to the general Democratic base, which is leaning more progressive, is going to be a winning strategy, to me seems absurd. Right? I mean, this just... So, yes, to the extent that, you know, politicians who are currently in office have taken Koch money, I don't think that they're going to be advertising that. Dan Lutner, you agree? I think Sharmila is overstating it a little bit. Uh, But let's just stick on the Republican side for a split second here. Uh, according to the New York Times in 2016, the Koch brothers spent $889 million uh, on that campaign cycle in 2016. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that amount of money they spent is higher than Donald Trump's net worth, which we still don't exactly know, in spite of him claiming to be worth billions. Um, so that said, at the end of the day, politics still costs money, and that Republican infighting and the, pe- and the people that have been fawning over the Kochs and their independent expenditures in Republican politics, that's not going to go away. And while the president might, not, might be able to deliver his base 
to some Republicans, that's not enough to win in every district or every state across the country. So it takes money to do things, and if the Koch brothers have now said the well might be drying up if uh, you keep supporting the insanity of some of Donald Trump's policies, yeah, that's a thing. So regardless of whether or not Democrats capitalize directly from actually getting something from the Koch brothers' spigot, the fact that that spigot might be cut off to some Republican candidate is absolutely a benefit to their Democratic opponents who now see a war chest that might be significantly smaller, at least on the independent expenditure uh, front, for their Republican opponents. That said, and this is where I think Sharmila went a bridge too far, uh, while I am always skeptical, uh, borderline cynical, but skeptical of some of the Koch brothers' projects, some of the things they have spent money on in and Cato is one of their uh, the recipients of Koch Brothers money, I believe. Uh, I'm sure Alan will gladly uh, step in to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, they do do things that Democrats care about. So as Justin mentioned, immigration reform is one of those things uh, that the Koch Brothers are in favor of, in part because it also plays in line with their libertarian thinking and the free movement of labor. But they've also taken some action and spent money on sentencing reform, both the state and federal levels, and not just for the white-collar crooks that you would expect for the, these billionaire brothers, but actually for working class and poor people, and that includes poor people of color and, realize, and spending money pointing out that how we spend money on criminal justice is occasionally unfair and also counterproductive. To, mem- to certain members of society. That's actually a thing. And they've also spent some money on privacy issues. And Russ Feingold actually spoke on this and said good things about the Koch brothers. I believe Bernie Sanders has even said good things about them on some of these issues. So while the, the amount of money they spend definitely corrupts the system, that, that, that is true. But there are there there are issues of common ground considering the Trump team the, the president seems without any basis for his belief at least the, the Koch brothers have something to point to as something they believe. So But Lord let me go to Lord Thomas. I agree with that, but again I where I, I come in is that I think it's interesting, you know, I, I agree with Dan that I think that, you know, to the extent that the Koch brothers would withhold funding from certain right-wing candidates, that's certainly going to be a boon to their Democratic opponents. But where I do still think there's going to be a challenge is for the Koch brothers to re- reverse and, you know, or for the Koch network and for, you know, sort of Democrats that want to be able to be recipients of this new money coming their way to reverse the kind of very ingrained brand perception that I think a lot of progressives and especially younger voters have of the Coat Network and, and well, what their wait, money wait, wait a minute. Hold, hold, hold on. Let, let me go to Laura Chavez first. I, I mean, Laura, I, I mean, you, you followed the Coke brothers in, in, in media throughout several cycles. I, I mean, do they have a branding problem? I mean, it, it almost seems like they've been almost unfairly vilified by the far left, even though that they supported a a very expensive mailer for Senator Coons out of Delaware uh, because he supported the Dreamers. They are big supporters of the Dreamers and the Dream Act. Uh, they just pulled out of 
uh, a Republican. They just pulled out of supporting a Republican in the race against. Um, uh, help me out here, Alan Moore, uh, Democratic senator. Heidi Heitkamp. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Said it a lot like Sharmila. But, I mean, Laura Chavez, <laughs> do the Cokes – are the Cokes going to be in an uphill battle to almost reinvent their brand? I think they will, um, mostly because right now we're in such a weird time where the ideology of what you believe, what your party believes, you know, there's such a factioning going on that the Koch brothers don't really have a home anymore. Before, people could easily put them in a box where it was like, oh, they believe in, they lean so much for, so much farther to the right, they give a disproportionate amount of money to candidates on the Republican side. We, we know where they fit. We can see where they belong right now. But right now, with the political climate that we're currently swimming through, there's so much mud in the water that nobody – it doesn't seem like anyone has a place anymore. There's, you know, the far, far right. There's the mid-center right. There are the, there's the Trump base. There are so many different places you can be that even fitting into one place has become a real challenge. And I think where the Koch brothers are going to really have a hard time doing that is when they try to approach um, Democratic candidates who are on the younger side. And I think it is going to be more of a generational thing, to be perfectly honest. I think, yes, uh, Dan's totally right. Money talks. Like when somebody comes to you with a large check from their personal pack, then yeah, they can totally kind of have a bit more of a say in things. But a lot of people like the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's of the world are at that point where they're like, no, we can do this on our own. We don't need the big money. I can grassroots this. So they're trying to build without these larger donors and larger corporations and larger, larger organizations and larger donations. So I think one of the things they're going to have a real issue with is disproving that they're not secret conservatives, but they are libertarians. And if you look at their track record, they do, you're right, they're very fair to DACA. They have an interesting stance on, you know, taxes or taxation and a thousand other things. But um, one of the things they're really going to have to fight is proving themselves to any Democratic candidate they approach. Because the other thing you have to remember is with money comes influence. And anyone who accepts this money is going to probably just assume, okay, well, now they have an influence in my campaign. They will have a say in things. And that's just how politics works, and that's the way it is. But, give, but seeding that kind of influence, that kind of you know, ear to the ground, that kind of you know, placement in a campaign is a big thing to give up, especially with this new surge of people on the left or of candidates on the left who are trying to really push the envelope. The Stacey Abrams in Georgia who are saying, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this grassroots-wise. Yes, I have the support of my Democratic fellows, but I also need to make sure that, you know, the amount of people, the amount of minorities in the state of Georgia, they are signed up. And it's not necessarily that they're doing that with money. They're doing that by getting boots on the ground, by talking to people, and having the Coke name affiliated with you when you're on the ground and being asked about that is a hard thing to stand up and say like, Oh no, trust me. They're, they're good guys. They, they donated money because they want to help with immigration. They want to help with, you know, making our borders secure, but not, not building a wall. So the democratic party is going to have a really hard time uh, accepting that money unless there's some sort of massive branding change. 
But Alan Moore, hey, you, you know, yeah, go ahead, Alan Moore, please. Yeah, I, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves if we're thinking that the Cokes are about to start spreading the money more evenly. They, they, they spent hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars in 2016, and they gave Democrats a few hundred thousand. The two people, two of the people you mentioned, Mark Pryor and, uh, and, and, uh, and Mary Landrieu, are no longer in the Senate. They, 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 were, they were shooting a little bit of money here and there consistent with their uh, long-held uh, libertarian beliefs and the fact that simply because somebody's a Republican or Democrat does not automatically mean that we will oppose them or that we will support them. I think what, what, what is more likely, what we're seeing a little bit now, and people have made much of, of uh, the, the kind things they've said about Heidi Heitkamp uh, and, the, and, the, and the decision not to endorse her Republican opponent, that's really interesting. And that's certainly helpful to Heitkamp we're not talking about a bunch of money, though. We're talking about. I, I think. I think Sharmila got it exactly right. If they, if they spend less for some Republicans, automatically that reduces the imbalance that might otherwise exist for Democrats. But that's not the same thing as giving the Democrats big money. And I don't see any evidence yet that they're talking about that. Um, having said that. If, some, if, if, if your opponent suddenly loses a million dollars, that's really helpful to you from a financing standpoint, whether or not you get a penny from them. I, I think we're just we're, – we're at the front end of this. I don't think they need to rebrand. I think that what they would say is the views we have on, for example, immigration, the views we have, for example, on the economy, on, on deficit spending, on trade – and tariffs, those are not new. Those are not new. And when we find someone who, Republican or Democrat, who is out there pushing these issues like they did with Chris Coons on the immigration stuff, um, they're, they're not afraid to say so. They're not embarrassed to say so. And they have a lot of following. They, they give hundreds of millions, but they're also uh, part of this network of other large donors who try to collectively make decisions. I think that's where the numbers that Dan cited came from. I don't think it was Coke money to the tune of $800 million. I think they were maybe in for half of that. Um, but I, I believe, I, I could be wrong here, but I believe that it's this network that they also uh, have of a couple of hundred other donors, all of whom are good for at least six figures or more. Um, so they do have this influence, but they aren't just blindly supporting Republicans. And I think there's a lot of distress that Republicans have been so quiet in taking on the president on some of these long historically held positions of the, of the Republican party. They're doing it for self-preservation, but Coke doesn't have to worry about self-preservation. Anyway, I don't see them needing to redefine. I don't see them starting to turn big money towards lots of Democrats. I totally agree with, with what Charmel has said on that too. The Democrats are, <laughs> They would rather demonize Coke. They, they don't for a moment think they're going to get any Coke money. They want Tom Steyer money. They don't want Coke money, but they would love to see the Cokes um, not spend as much money, not give money to their particular opponents. Um, uh, I would guess if the Cokes say something nice about a Democrat, 
like Chris Coons, I haven't heard what his response is. It's like, hey, I'm glad they like they, I'm glad they like my position. That's been my long held position. I'm glad there are some people out there on the other side of the political spectrum who who are in agreement with us. I don't see him giving up a bunch of money to Coons. Yeah, but so, but let me let me go what, back to what, your what let's, 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 talk, let's talk hold, to, hold on hold on hold on hold on everybody hold on, Alan Moore. But to me, the left has painted the Koch brothers as. The is, is the all-knowing, omnipotent uh, villain of financing Republican politics over the past decade, decade and a half. Yet it, it now seems that they have now lost that title to the Republican Party being the party of Trump. In a fight for the soul of the party, who wins? Is this the president winning because he tweets, or is this the Koch brothers winning because of longevity and deep pockets. Well, for I the moment, it's, the it's, 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 it's very clear that the, that the president is winning right now. Um, I, I saw one poll that was being talked about earlier today um, that when, 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 when uh, Trump supporters were asked, how many of you uh, trust the president um, more than anyone else in your life? Ninety-one percent. How many trust your family? Your family? Your no. Who who do you trust? Do you trust the president when he speaks? Ninety-one percent yes. Do you trust your family when they speak? Sixty-one percent yes. Do you trust the media when they mainstream media when they speak? Eleven percent. That's where Republicans are these days. And it's and it's nuts. It's crazy. It's scary. But that's where they are. So for the time being, that's where. Republicans are. That doesn't mean they'll always be there. The Cokes aren't trying to compete with that. They're not trying to say, we want you to trust us more than the president. They're saying, these are the issues we believe in. These are the issues that we think are the most important for America. And if there are Democrats who take positions that, that are consistent with what we're talking about, we don't have any trouble, trouble calling them out, thanking them, congratulating them, and but, possibly giving them right. some dough. But, but Dan, I don't see a lot of big money moving. I, I think they'll spend less money, um, right? And if, if as a first step, not shoot money towards Democrats. The Democrats right. aren't going to want it. They want them to spend less on their opponents, but I don't think they're ready to take it yet. I mean, Dan Lipner. I mean, you know, you look at High Camp, you look at Mansion, you look at uh, some of the other uh, yellow dog Democrats that are out there, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, when push comes to shove and you're looking at, and, and, and again, we're looking at states with numbers that Trump delivered, but, you know, Minnesota, you've got him at 35% approval rating. You've got Wisconsin, 37%, Ohio, 33%, Pennsylvania, 35%. These are states that are, that voted for Trump, but are quickly now upside down for him. Does the Coke money and the Coke initiative put those states back into play, considering the fact that they're in industries that employ a ton of lunch pail type voters? Well, first thing, Trump lost Minnesota. It was surprisingly close, but he lost Minnesota. Uh, the, the, all of that what we're talking about though, and I want to go back to one additional point as far as the, the Democrats 
swallowing hard about taking this money. Unless the money comes from Nambla, and I'm going to go out on a limb and go <laughs> the and from the locker, people know who extent? Nambla is. No, why? No, no, don't, no, don't. The money is green. So, yes, there are occasional ads that talk about who somebody took money from. The effectiveness of those ads for anything other than riling up the base is suspect. So the, the money that is green that can be spent, yeah, it can, it can draw some attention. But on the Democratic side, in, under the punch the hippie strategy, after you've won the primary, is the base really going to run away because somebody took a few grand from the Cokes? Or I, more I disagree- importantly – when the, when the Cokes are spending money completely independently, this is the independent expenditure issue. That's where you can also say, I have no control over this. They're doing their own thing. Yeah, some folks might stay home. I doubt that number is is incredibly large. I mean, I, I, have to disagree, I have to disagree with Dan because, I mean, I saw the effect of, you know, sort of the perception of, you know, taking the wrong money or being be- – to beholden to large donors had on the Clinton campaign, right? Even after the primary, the, a lot oh, of people who voted for Bernie. Bernie. What? But that's because of the backdrop of Bernie. That is not normally right, an issue. Know, that was an uncommon example. Right. But the Bernie effect is still out there, right? It's not like, okay, Bernie Sanders was in this one election and now he has no influence anymore. Of course, that that phenomenon still exists within the progressive base and with a lot of, I think, independent voters. It, that message of sort of the, the corruption and the inherent evil of money in politics has stuck with a lot of voters from both on the progressive, the extreme left side of the progressive base and I think to a lot of sort of independent, that mushy middle, the mushy middle voter as well. So I, I disagree with Dan's assertion that, you know, any money that's the voters are not going to pay attention to, you know, who money is given by and that, you know, any money that's green will be accepted by candidates. Because I think I think people have become more attuned and they're paying attention to this stuff. All right. I am certain uh, most voters are going to money involves Coca-Cola. Hey, Justin, not Everybody, hold on, hold on. We got to go to break, guys. We got a lot to yeah. talk about today. We got to go to break. Real quick, Alan. Though. Quick one, thing, one, one thing. Minute, one yeah, minute. I I love it when the Democrats on the show argue with each other, and I doubly love it when Sharma is right and Dan is wrong. That's all. Oh, <laughs> stop fair it. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Around the Maybe horn, we'll real get quick. To that point we, go. Around the horn, before we go to break, is this the beginning of a civil war for the heart of the Republican Party? Alan Moore. The civil war is on. This is not the beginning. Dan Lipner. The Civil War is on, but I'm not certain there's a heart or a soul of the Republican Party. Lord Chavez. We're in the middle of it, and sadly, there are no heroes to see yet. Sharm Lachari. Yep, agree with everyone else. The Civil War started in 2015, and it's nowhere close to being done. Wow. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the president's touting some really big numbers that were released in the economy last week. The economy's humming, but... How accurate is the president's uh, victory lap? We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three
Backroom Politics. And we're back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Hey, we're talking economic news. In case you haven't seen, the economy here in the United States is kind of on a roll. It's been humming for a while now. And if you listen to the president on Friday, he is the WD-40 to keep that thing well looped. Uh, the numbers came out on the uh, economy. The economic numbers came out on Friday, where it showed uh, gross domestic product grew at a strong 4.1% in the quarter ending June 30. And it is on a constant tear of, uh, of, of, of increasing GDP numbers over several quarters since the president's taken office. Uh, it, we are on the verge of going through the largest economic growth period, now almost 10 years, in the history of America, and the president's doing a victory lap. Uh, his quote from Friday, this is one of the biggest wins in the report. It is the uh, second longest on record as far as economic expansion goes, and it is indeed a big one in that trade deficit very dear to my house, has been ripped off the world as dropped, according to the president. president saying that uh, his latest trade wars have caused our trade deficit to go down. Uh, Republican leaders bought into it. It seems that the Hill is loving it, and Wall Street's loving it, too. Today, the stock market closed up about 120 points at last count, uh, but it is a big, big deal. Uh, let me start with um, with Laura Chavez. Laura, I mean, does does the president have a reason to be doing a victory lap right now? I mean, let's look at it. Four point one for the quarter is a is a big number. Yeah, it definitely is, and I think there. I mean, any growth in the economy is great. I want to go on record as saying I'm very happy to see these numbers, um, but it'll be interesting to also see how these numbers kind of surface out. Um, obviously, this isn't the first time we've ever gone above 4%, but bottom line, like, this is good for the economy. It's going to help a lot of people. Uh, it's questionable how he got there, which is kind of why the victory lap gets, like, a tiny little asterisk. Um, it does have to do a lot with, you know, a massive, you know, shift in soybeans. It has to do with, yes, the tariffs that he is about to, you know, enact could have a massive Push. I was actually talking with uh, someone in Indiana who is in like rural Indiana, where I'm from, and they were all saying like, "Oh yeah, right now is great," but everyone's kind of looking one to two seasons ahead of time. So this victory lap might, hopefully, is sustainable, which would be great, but it doesn't necessarily look like it's going to last the last until 2020. Alan Moore, you agree with that? I mean, should the president be doing a victory lap on these numbers? Well, <laughs> hell yes. Why shouldn't he? That's what politicians do. Did he do something special? Does he deserve credit? Hell no. Um, uh, he's, he's riding the wave now, and, and there are a lot of reasons that we've had this wave. There are some particular reasons, and Laura mentioned one of them, that this, this particular quarter got, got the extra bump, um, and that was – Pre-sale, pre-sale of soybeans in anticipation of tariffs. 
Um, most of that extra soybean sales went to, of all places, China, which is is going to impose those tariffs. There's 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 uh, the, the the economic experts also believe that some of this was a result of the of the uh, the aftermath of the the tax bill, which was a stimulative bill along with stimulative deficit spending by the federal government, which is controversial in its own right. So, you, you if you look back. Over the last four quarters, they were, we had two that were just over 3%. One was 2.9, one was 2.63, um, and now we've got one at 4.1. So you, you average those out, and we're operating and likely at the end of the year to be in the neighborhood of 3% growth. That's pretty good. That's better than where we were the, the last couple of years, although not as good as 2014, when we had two quarters, one at 4.6% and one at 5.2%. That's the highest that we've had in a very long time. These things go up and down, and they're influenced by world events, by, by energy disruptions, by weather issues, and so on. So... I don't have any quarrel with this president or any president doing what all presidents do, pounding their chests when there's some good results. And then when we're faced with a 1.6% quarter next quarter or, you know, whatever it drops to, then it'll, he'll be blaming other people, blaming um, the horrible trade deals of blaming our crazy tax system, blaming the Democrats, um, uh, blaming the Chinese, blaming the Iranians, who knows? Um, but presidents do this. It's just that one quarter does not a trend make. One year does not a trend make. Um, we've been in this long period. In the last, I'm staring at a chart right now, the last seven years, we've had a quarter with as low as minus 1.5% growth back in 2011 and as high as 5.2% in the positive in the third quarter of 2014, and virtually everything in between, most of them on the plus side, just a couple in, um, in negative territory, but some low ones. It goes up and down. That's what the economy does. Presidents claim credit when they can, and, uh, and then they'll eat humble, eat humble pie or, or cast blame when things don't go as well as they hope. Dan Lipner, is is the idea that maybe the big numbers going for stockpiling American goods, although it, I mean it it plays to the base, it did drop the trade deficit down slightly, uh, but it's is it eventually going to hurt the people that put Donald Trump into office? Are they are they dealing with jazz hands economics right now? Dan Lipner, did we lose Dan? <laughs> All right, uh, Charlotte I, Charlie. I hope I, I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't offend Dan and cause him to. A- apparently leave you in a did. Hunt. Apparently you did. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, Dan. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Charmla, did are we dealing with jazz hands economics here? Well, I think to Alan's point, this is part of the sort of the economic cycle. You get you know in periods of growth, you'll get customer confidence and customer spending are going to go up, and then. You know, eventually, when the economy kind of cools back down again or is not operating at the same number at the same growth numbers, you're going to get 
a dip in all these indicators and you know and then the cycle will will tumble down so I don't know that, you know, the jazz hand economics that you're referring to, again, to Alan's point, are, are more or less extreme than they've been with any other, you know, administration, any other period of, you know, heightened economic growth. But, Lord Chavez, you know, you're you're out there in the Midwest. You've been talking to people at, you know, family farmers. You've been talking to, okay, whoever's chopping ice needs to stop. Thank you. Uh, Lord Charles, you've been talking to uh, farmers out there. You've been talking to local business owners out there. Are they excited by the message and the numbers that they're seeing coming out of Washington for uh, the strong economy that, that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are excited about the strong economy, even just having, as um, Alan was saying, even just having the ability to do this victory lap is kind of a – good boost to the ego for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people see this as, you know, Trump made a promise in, his, or when he was candidate Trump, he said he was going to have growth of three to 4%. He has gone over 4%, which is no small task, which is great. Um, I think a lot of people also see this as a really wonderful prediction towards the future. You know, he's promising like, let's open up steel despite these steel tariffs, let's get coal going. So he, they're seeing this and saying, all right, everything's continuing to grow. It was one of the fastest quarters of growth in a long time. Um, you know, since he's taken uh, office, since he took the oath, you know, it has been a decent amount of growth. So they're seeing this as like, oh, he's finally going to start doing all of the things that he said he was going to do. He's going to start reopening factories. He's going to get my job back. He's going to make America great again. They're using this as an indicator of almost like the first domino to fall. There were some hesitations, but with that said, a lot of people, or a lot of, and that's with a lot of blue-collar workers um, in more of an industrial field. But when you do talk to farmers, they're a little bit more concerned, to be perfectly honest. They see this as, yes, they'll be getting that $12 billion, but that's not going to cover them for very long. They would much rather have uh, the sort of predictability, because farming is not necessarily the most predictable or the most stable, because you can have a bad crop year, you can have a bad rainy season, you can have a super dry season, so there are a thousand different factors to, you know, take into account, but they would much rather have that risk of, you know, a good season, a bad season, knowing that, you know, over the course of their lifetime, it'll all even out, than have any sort of um, money coming in from the government. That feels very handoutish to them. Uh, it also feels like, um, for lack of a more eloquent way to put it, it kind of feels like they're being bottle-fed. Uh, there are a lot of people – now, keep in mind, this isn't going to shake his base. Everyone who I've talked with, uh, both reporter friends who are also do, talking with people and actual, like, people that I have grown up with, um, all of them are saying, you know, nope, this, this is just part of the process. We trust the process. The base is still there, even though um, it might not feel that way for their pockets at the moment. And keep in mind, when you have an economic growth like this, it doesn't always feel that way to everyone. Um, they're not necessarily reaping the benefits of this, you know, boon, if you will. They're just hearing it, and so they're trusting it. So I think that is kind of um, an interesting perspective from them, uh, from the people I've been talking with, just because they're seeing these numbers. It's very much the Trump says something, they trust it kind of attitude that has really been hard, has really been good and strong for his base. 
that is how they operate a lot of the time, and that just seems to be the way they're going to choose to continue to operate because whether they want to dig into the numbers or not, they see that the guy they elected has done what he said he's going to do, and they see this as like, all right, well, he's going to do that. He's probably going to build the wall next. He's going to reopen this factory. Everything's going to go back to being great and amazing. And, you know, however many other changes and promises they hope he keeps are just on the horizon for them. Dan Lipner, I mean, we're seeing anywhere from two and a half, three, four point one percent. Is this economic growth long term sustainable? Well, first of all, let's go with the question of who the economic growth is going to and for. Uh, as Alan mentioned, he was looking at a chart, and I'm looking at a chart, too, which is uh, real wages versus inflation. And so while the economic growth is great, especially for the people who can capitalize on that, and that would be the capitalists at the, at the end of the spectrum, that they're absolutely reaping those gains. The question is, are those, the rest of those Trump voters and the Trump base reaping any of those gains? And the numbers suggest no. And if you want to go to the flaws of the Democratic Party with the, their latest slogan of for the people, Lord knows what that's supposed to mean. It would be nice if it meant the wages for the people, since uh, most people still cannot identify the Democrats as a party of, of working folks. So that real income and real wages where most people where most average Americans get their money from has not only not changed, but is actually losing next to inflation. So people are actually bringing home less money than they were before. That's what part of the conversation needs to be, not the general GDP. Alan Moore, yeah, I mean... There's another, there's, yeah, there's another side to what Dan said. I, I, I think that, 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 that a year or two ago that, that one could say that there hadn't been any, any real, real wage growth in, uh, in, in much, much of the recovery. That has turned... And there is now uh, a lot of evidence that the that there has been some real wage growth, um, and it, some of that is the strength of the economy, the the very low unemployment rate, um, uh, and e- even though there's some problems with that, as we all know, um, so we say anymore, people are making less now than they used to. That is generally not. The, the the case. One can argue whether they, the raises have, have been high enough. One can argue about what the role of of the the, the big tax bill last year was. Um, but I think that that uh, Dan's assertion is a little out of date. But but Alan, you know, the president on Friday was talking about the wage growth that's been happening under his administration. Uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the numbers I've seen, uh, the first 18 months of this administration, wages have dropped compared to where they were the last 18 months of the Obama administration. I mean, is the president just banking on nobody cares what the BLS says? Well, so <laughs> these are, you know, these are complicated things that that is not it's not my impression that that, that what you just said is correct, but we can pull out BLS statistics and so on. Um, uh, the, you know, there's, there's a couple of pieces to this. There's what are real, what are wages and what are, what's happening to them. Um, 
and what about unemployment? And uh, for a while, you start employing people at old old wage rates, and then as the economy gets stronger, um, consumer spending is up. We didn't talk about that. That was an important con- contributor to the uh, to this GDP growth. Um, as you have to start competing for this scarcer set of uh, 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 workers, pay raises are part of what you do, um, uh, part of uh, what goes along with it. So does everybody get a pay raise? Of course not. Uh, and do some people get disproportionate high rate? Yes. Or is there heavy-duty competition in some fields? You bet. Um, but generally, I th- it, it, it's been my impression that that uh, in, in the, over the last year plus, I don't give the president credit for all of this, but as the economy has strengthened, unemployment has has dropped. There is now more pressure on wages. There's also some inflation uh, that, that shows up here too. Um, but the the fact of the matter is when you have growth in the three to three to 4% uh, unemployment in the low f- uh, 4% people returning to the workforce, so labor force participation actually going up, consumer confidence going up. Those are good things. We'd love to sustain I mean, that in, right. in perpetuity. We know it doesn't work like that. Right, but but Sharmila, I mean, according to the numbers we saw on Friday, seven, almost $7 out of every 10 spent in the U.S. the past three quarters have been by consumers. Americans are buying a lot of stuff, and that means that somebody's got to make that stuff. Somebody's got to ship that stuff. Those numbers are equaling up to a fairly solid, uh, a fairly robust economy. Right, but you know, to kind of Dan's point, where are they buying them from? Are they buying them all from Amazon? Because if so, that benefits one company disproportionately, and you know, others are left in the lurch. So. I think you're right. When you look at these large trends about consumer spending, yes, people are spending more and they're being more, you know, they're, they're more confident in how they're spending and they're shifting back into spending, you know, luxury and kind of disposable items. But where is that money going? Is it going back into their home communities? Is, are they, you know, is it being spent to actually, are they investing back in their own hometowns or are they, or are they still price conscious in the way they spend? So are they still going to the Amazon's, Walmart's, Target's to get the lowest price? In which case, a lot of those goods still, you know, despite the tariffs that are coming into play, a lot of those goods still are not made and manufactured in the United States. They're coming from, you know, their foreign imports. All right, but uh, all that being all that being considered, you know, Laura Chavez, th- does that does that trend help out middle America? I mean, they may be spending a lot now, but, you know, if you look at factors like China went on a buying binge of soybean and other grain products to avoid tariffs. So those next set of numbers are going to be somewhat inflated. The downstream numbers, there's going to be a hangover to this. Can middle America handle the hangover? I think it's going to come as a big shock to middle America, partially because, as has been pointed out, the, uh, the dispersion of money, of, you know, 
know, it hasn't necessarily been to middle America, and yet a lot of people see these numbers and they and they associate it with their bank account. So they see that you know uh, unemployment's going down and more people are spending money and that inspire and wages are going up. Um, and a lot of people are seeing that as permission to also spend money. So I think there will be a little bit of a sustainability with that, but I also think that people won't necessarily be planning ahead for what might happen um, in when this plateaus or when this falls or, you know, because I don't, I'm not a master economist, but this kind of growth is exceptionally difficult to sustain over the course of quarters, years, decades, whatever. Um, so I think it's going to come as a bit of a shock to the middle class when they don't see those results from here after hearing. For I mean, they read the headline. It was 4.1% growth is what was happening. They've heard the, you know, the news bites. They've heard all of that, but it's very rare that um, the layperson will actually like dive into these numbers and see exactly how it should be falling to them. So I think the actual spending aspect of it probably has a little bit of has some legs to it for now, but I think in the next 12 to 16 months, which is going to bring us right up to 2020, it's going to be a bit of a shock if these numbers can't sustain where they are, and people are going to start asking, like, hey, what about that? What about all the sustained growth that we were expecting? Why isn't my bank account reflecting that? I don't understand where this is going, uh, or why this isn't really coming. Alan Moore, off of that, off of that mindset that Laura just brought up. Are we seeing the cross-pollination of, of, of factors, I guess is the, the only term I could use. You know, the numbers next quarter are going to show huge bump up in soybean, grain, dairy, products that China, the EU bought before the tariffs and the trade war started. Uh, at the same time, we're going to see a whole different line of uh, employment factors that are going to be tied in with that surge. Is the, is the president playing a dangerous game of cross-pollinating, look how successful my tariffs have been or the trade war has been, and look how it robust the economy is, I'm winning? I think his, the, the place where he goes wrong is when he gets carried away with saying, this is great, this is amazing, and it's going to get even better. Rather than having a little perspective saying, we're really pleased with these results. It's what we've been working towards. The challenge is to sustain them. These numbers are going to go up or down, but let's rejoice uh, when they improve as much as they have. Um, we, we make a mistake, I think, if we, try to, if, if, we, if we look too closely at, well, what about the farmer? What about the factory worker? Um, the, the, what about this region versus that region? Things change a lot, and in the last year, there are certain sectors, both of the economy and of regions of the country, that have done pretty well. They've seen wage growth in the 3 to 4% range on average. But you also see places um, where you've actually seen a, a, a decline uh, in, in, in uh, natural resources and mining. There's actually been a decline in wages. In businesses of medium size, there's been a marginal increase. It, it's really difficult to, to, to generalize, and one, you know, it's kind of dangerous. Um, workers over 55 um, have, have seen more wage growth than anybody else. That's not going to always be there. 
um, entry-level jobs of P are, are down sl- slightly on average. So uh, there's always a lot of stuff going on. You add it all up, and then you get a GDP figure. Um, and and one has to be really careful drawing too many conclusions or or, or looking at one uh, sector alone. Things that matter, though, are consumer confidence, consumer spending, um, uh, unemployment, and the, the the pressure that puts on wages and, and and inflation. We've all we've said now that there was some anomalies in the export of soybeans. People trying to beat the tariffs. Um, there's something else that's going on that we haven't talked about that hopefully will be a positive, and that is this this <laughs> this deal that or understanding that the president and the head of the EU reached last week and who came out and said, "Hey, we, it's great. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna put our our problems behind us. We're gonna work to a uh, a tariff-free, subsidized-free relationship with all of Europe." Woo-hoo! And people say, uh, "Details, please. What are we talking about?" The only thing good about that is if we can reduce tensions with Europe, that suggests that we can get Europe on our side in our bigger fights, the stuff that really does matter with China. And we've talked about it in the past where these issues with Mexico, Canada, and and Europe are are stupid uh, and counterproductive and feed on people's ignorance, including the president's own. Problems with China, different thing. Um, they they don't play fair. Um, everybody cheats a little, plays fair here and there, protects certain sectors, protects certain industries. Right. The Chinese do a lot of cheating across the board. Only way we can counter them in a meaningful way is if we do it with our allies. If we do it in right. unison. And my hope after the announcement with the EU was, God, I hope we can get them back on our side and we can start planning together. How to deal just with like you know what you know what Alan it would be just like that great deal we struck with Chairman Kim in North Korea because you know they're not building any more missiles or expanding their program. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, our allies, North Korea and Russia, they got our back. Yeah, that's right. Aren't we hey, glad we did that with our with our allies. <laughs> exactly. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the latest political dumpster fire here in Washington. Uh, apparently collusion's not a crime and apparently Cohen likes to talk and also Manafort's in a courtroom right now. They just seated a jury. This is the blessed political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here with the best political talk show you've never heard of, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from New York City, Sharmila Chari. From Chicago, Laura Chavez. From the National Capital Region with me is Dan Lipner and Alan Moore. And joining us from an undisclosed location in the Shenandoah Valley or Blue Ridge Mountains of Appalachia is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Hey, uh, let's talk a little bit about the political dumpster fire going on here inside the Beltway. Uh, In case you haven't heard, Rudy Giuliani has officially declared that collusion is not illegal and, quote-unquote, collusion is not a crime and, quote-unquote, the president is absolutely innocent. Uh, Here's some more gems from the president's outside counsel and former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. Quote, for, more, for months, they're not going to be colluding with Russia, which I don't even know if that's a crime, colluding about Russians. You start analyzing the crime. The hacking is the crime. The president didn't hack. Uh, he also said on Fox and Friends, quote, I've been sitting here looking in the federal code, trying to find collusion as a crime. Collusion is not a crime. Uh, let me go to uh, our resident attorneys. Let me start off with, uh, Sharmila, Chari, Sharmila. Um, technically, the mayor's right. Collusion is not a crime, but uh, last I checked, conspiracy is. Correct, right? Collusion is the kind of catch all term that I think the media has adopted for the idea that members of the Trump campaign, perhaps even the president himself, conspired with various elements of the Russian government to influence the election. So you are correct. Um, That being said, to your point, conspiracy still is very much a crime. And if the Mueller probe discovers that, you know, members of the Trump campaign or the Trump family or the president himself were engaged in conspiratorial activities in order to influence the election or to commit any other crimes, right? It could be a conspiracy to commit money laundering or to commit tax evasion, right? So if the, if the probe determines that conspiracy occurred, then you know, anyone who is discovered to have participated in such conspiracy can very well face criminal liability. So keeping that thought in mind, let's also talk about the fact that the president's former uh, campaign chair and former best friend to the Ukraine and Russian sympathizers, Paul Manafort, is currently uh, or was earlier sitting in an Alexandria, Virginia courtroom, federal courtroom, uh, as they completed voir dire and have seated a jury of six men and six women for uh, the case against Paul Manafort. Dan Lipner, how important is this case for the credibility of Robert Mueller and the special counsel's office? Well, the question is whether or not Manafort is found guilty. That's where everything lies. And I cannot imagine a lawyer as talented as Mueller is that he didn't have Manafort dead to rights before he brought 
any case. And by the numbers, when federal prosecutors go to court, they win. They win a wild percentage of the time. If this were a batting average, they would be the greatest of all time. So I cannot imagine that Manafort is not going to jail for a very long time or when he is found guilty of the crimes for which he has been accused, he is going to flip to try and bargain away all that prison time and maybe try and protect some of the money that he has earned possibly illicitly through the years. Sharmila, this the case in Virginia, in Virginia federal court against Paul Manafort, are largely taxation and financial fraud based. Uh, many in the legal community would call this a paper case where this doesn't rely solely on the testimony of human beings. They've got everything on paper. Is, is this, the, is this calculated? Did, did the special counsel's office want this case to move forward first, watching the dominoes just drop leading up towards the big ticket items? Sharmila? Dan Lipner, I'll go to you for that. Did you catch that? <laughs> I did indeed catch that. And the the paper issues are by far the most difficult for a a prosecutor to argue in court. However, they have the benefit of paper doesn't lie. You can have people arguing away things like, well, this doesn't matter when simply following the money is where the money is. So Traditionally, when you're arguing a case in court, you have to try and explain things. And when things get complicated, uh, that's when phrases like, if it does not fit, you must acquit, come from. And jurors are not experts. Jurors are people that need to be walked. You need to take them by the hand and walk them to the issues before them. However, once you're talking about a paper trail and following the money, it simply is what it is. It's still a hard job to, to teach people the issues at play. However, it's also complicated to get somebody else to say in a simple phrase that it doesn't matter. Um, does it surprise you from a legal standpoint that with a paper case as strong as we, it appears may be the case against Manafort, are you a little surprised that uh, a deal hasn't been struck or is this a case where, you know what, this is our first uh, foray in the courtroom. We're not going to offer a deal. Dan Lipner. I am fairly certain deals have been offered in the privacy of meetings between uh, opposing parties. That said, it's clear that nobody has accepted the deals that have been offered. However, what happens as this goes downstream? So assume for the sake of argument that Manafort is found guilty. Some of these things are not strictly federal liability. So there, there are downstream consequences to a finding of guilt from a jury. This is, so even if Donald Trump offers a pardon, some of this evidence is simply accepted as fact. So the question is, what happens there? And 
I humbly would suggest, and I think I've said this on the show, that I think some of the actions that have happened that, that Putin has taken, and I say Putin deliberately, uh, with the assassination that happened in, or assassination attempt um, that happened in the UK using <laughs> nerve gas, of all things, was a deliberate statement that, by the way, I can get people wherever they are. And there's not for a split second somebody's going to convince me the Russians couldn't have uh, killed somebody without fingerprints on, on it. So a, there are zillions of different toxins on, in the world, and there are a lots of ways you can do things, and the Russians are pretty good at it since, since the Cold War. Dan just that brought us into the info is, wars. No, no, I mean, the, the real question is, I mean, do you not think they could have found something other than VX nerve gas to kill somebody? That's hard Wait, to use and really dangerous for the perpetrator. Good God, so, how do we do no, the, the question is, if Manafort actually has connection with not just the Russians, but Putin directly or somebody within Putin's scope of influence that is directly linked, keeping that quiet is a, is a big factor. So in which case, how do you do it, especially if you can't get to the person at hand? You, make a, 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 you take a public action that will get the message across plain and clear. That's how it would happen. Okay. We got that. Uh, uh, um, Justin, uh, yeah, hang Alan. on. Let me, let me weigh in on this. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I'm a little unclear exactly what Dan said, but I don't want him to say it again. Um, the, the, the thing that the, there's a couple of things with, with Manafort that, that set this kind of case apart from a, you know, a typical tax case. There are receipts and evidence of the purchase of six homes of of a million dollars worth of carpeting of $800,000 worth of landscaping and home improvement. There's massive spending. And it appears that that the money for that came from overseas accounts His income over those years. We're going to learn about, but it supposedly his reported income for all those years was in the couple of hundred thousand dollar range even as he was spending many millions of dollars a year. This is a tax, it, it, at issue, the case in Virginia is a tax avoidance case. It's a federal case, but there are also state taxes that would also have been avoided um, in Virginia um, uh, and uh, where, he, where he spent some of his time in New York, Florida, and so on. The, the, a jury gets that, and they see this incredible lifestyle, and they resent it. They don't like it. Um, and so I, I think one has to assume that in this particular case, Mueller would, and his people would not have pursued this if they did not have a slam-dunk case against Manafort and, and weren't convinced that they can make that case by – uh, not only providing all the data, but 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 creating some ill feeling and resentment towards a rich guy who appears to have taken advantage. Now, in terms of cutting a deal, it's never been clear what Manafort had or has on President Trump. There's this great assumption that he was working with Trump, manipulating Trump, sharing stuff with Trump. I don't we don't know that that's the case. They were together for about five months working their tails off, you know, uh, all day long, every day, trying to figure out how to pull together a slapdash uh, operation 
get together a, a Republican convention team that would be able to push off anything else. They were working hard. Now, there's also evidence that Manafort had some personal agenda items that the president may well not have known anything about. He was in debt, and he had right. uh, a couple of Russian oligarchs looking over his shoulder wanting money back. So right. he had his own personal need to get access to money, to have access, to provide promised meetings, um, briefings, and so on. Rick Gates, his former associate, is going to be one of the key – one of Manafort's key associates is going to be one of the key witnesses. He has – he cut a plea deal. He's been cooperating uh, for, right. for for many months. We have to right. assume – that, that Manafort is going to be convicted of things. It's not at all clear what Manafort has to offer, and he may be hoping for a, for a, a, a pardon. pardon. As Dan accurately points out, the, a pardon. Uh, as Dan accurately points out, the president can only pardon for federal offenses, um, and this is only trial one. There's another trial, um, and, and we also know from the Nixon case that basically if you accept a pardon, you acknowledge guilt. Um, which is not particularly helpful to somebody's future prospects. It, and, and it's not at all clear because of other things that the president has said about Manafort distancing himself from him, even though he said this process is unfair, that the president would find it in his personal interest to, uh, uh, to, to pardon Manafort. There's no sympathetic case for pardoning Manafort right. like there is right. on some of the other pardons that he's given. So, yeah, right. I mean, Manafort presumably is hopeful um, but it seems to be not realistic. Uh, an odd case, unless there's a bunch of stuff we don't know. So right. we're going to watch all of this with great interest, but presumably oh, yeah. within a month, a month or so, we're going to find uh, a guilty uh, 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 a jury uh, convicting him on, you know, half a dozen or more. Right. I think there's 18 different counts. Um, right. So th- this has got to be so, a really, really, really hard time for for Paul Manafort, his family, and his world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lord Chavez, you know. Uh, sorry. The, the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say to kind of jump on Alan's point of holding on to hope. I feel like uh, I had a friend in the room, and it was really interesting to talk to them during the jury selection. So the jury actually ends up being six men and six women, and it's a really diverse crew, despite the fact that um, it comes from a predominantly Caucasian area. But one of the things that really stood out to her was the fact that as each juror was being questioned, one of the things that everyone was asked was, who did you vote for? And that came across, and everyone that was asked that as they were, you know, being uh, questioned and examined was genuinely shocked that that would be even approached because it would show some sort of bias in how they might rule this. And it is genuinely a 50-50 split at the moment of people who did vote for Trump and people who voted for not Trump. There were some independents, but it was was mostly Trump voters. It was like six Trump voters and then a slightly less minority or a majority minority of Hillary voters and then some fringe candidates who voted for like Jill Stein. But it was one of those things that it was a lot of people who were already in the Trump, who you have to wonder if they are part of the Trump base or if they were just like voted for Trump because we want to change. Actually, no, Lord, can I ask a question based, based on your yeah. on your information? 
Do you know how they pre- and, and forgive me, but this our show does go, do inside baseball. So, do you know how the preemptory challenges were used? Was there any hint on either side that something was a per se exclusion for any jurors? Um, the only exclusions were, oh, do you not none that were really interesting. It was a lot of, do you know this person? Uh, do you know any of the prosecutors? Do you know any of the players? Um, they were trying to find people with. Um, I don't know how to say this politely, but low information levels on this case. They weren't looking for, um, you know, people who had, like, Beltway insider knowledge. They were looking for people a little bit more on the fringe. That being said, obviously, when you're selected for a jury, you're not really allowed to, like, you know, Google anything or look it up online, which, um, as I was talking with uh, my friend, she was saying, like, that's got to be so hard. How do you do How do you not do that? To which we kind of had to remind each other that, you know, not everyone has our personal perspective and we need to check the news every day. And a lot of people are actually seeing, oh, she suspects that a lot of the jurors are actually seeing this as like a welcome break from a, a news cyclone, if you will. So people are actually like kind of looking forward to stepping back. So while there weren't any sort of uh, ride or die questions uh, that definitely set up red flags, but there were a fair amount of people who, um, just the general ones where it's who do you know, do you know of this case, what do you know of this case, and of the 65 people that they brought in, they found their 12. So. Interesting. Very interesting. Great breaking news on that one. That hasn't been reported yet, Laura. You just gave us a scoop. Well, don't tell her that. I think she's saying that at 5. Oh, crap. <laughs> Uh, well, it's 5:21, so I'm assuming she already went. Right. We're going with it. We're going with it. See, uh-huh. yay! Hey, we, uh, no, quick, no, now we're going with Laura. it. We have gone with it. When, when oh, that's right. Time, already out there. As a source, we'll take that. Oh, darn it! That's already out there. Hey, um, Laura, the question I want to ask you was, you know, the, the president's gone on a on a huge Twitter kick, uh, calling into question the. Uh, the credibility of Robert Mueller, uh, the fact that he may have uh, conflicts of interest on this, even brought out the fact that, according to the president, that he uh, had begged the president to make him the new FBI director the day before he was appointed as special counsel. There's all kinds of Twitter fodder floating around. Is, is the Twitter war enough? that if we do see a report coming out of the Miller's uh, office that is not favorable to the president to ward off disaster for this administration? Uh, I think in the greater population of the U.S. who aren't necessarily in his base, uh, it might be enough. It might be enough. They are, as the entire Trump administration is constantly churning the water so much that you're looking through mud and you don't know where the surface is. So I think having this many uh, witch hunts, witch hunts being thrown out there, and vendetta throwing out there, and all these buzzwords that are easily tweeted and you know very bigly and bad, um, I think that could be enough to at least give some perspective in the midterms. But I don't think it's going to be even remotely enough to shift the base um, and the people who are base adjacent. I. I would love to say yes, all of the, uh, for lack of a better word, whining and name-calling will be enough to give that certain, you know, distaste level for anyone, but alas, that hasn't been the, that hasn't been the course thus far. Alan Moore, do you agree? 
remind, re, re, repeat the question here. I'm sorry. Um, is, is the Twitter is the Twitter battle is the Twitter fodder that the president's putting out, questioning the conflicts of interest in Manafort, the team that he has, uh, the fact that he had reportedly asked the president to become the new FBI director the day before he was named as uh, as special counsel. Is that enough? to stave off disaster should a Manafort report come out and not be favorable to the administration? You mean a Mueller report? Um, Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think it's all going to depend on the content of the report. The president is doing – the president is consumed with this. He is fearful. He's angry. He still doesn't seem to understand the difference between uh, collusion uh, and and, and, – Conspiracy? Uh, and, no. Well, he certainly doesn't. I don't think it gets that collusion slash conspiracy versus meddling in our election and trying to influence it. He he equates them, and they and and they're all muddled up in his brain, and he he just doesn't seem to be able to sort that out, and he thinks it all comes back to whether he was legitimately elected president or not. As as people have said this, it's just out there, and it makes sense. It's the only thing that kind of fits the narrative of. Of, of his unhinged behavior towards Mueller. Now, at the same time, I think he's got this sense, if I can discredit the source, then I'll be able to discredit the report, whatever it says. Well, he, he, will, he will win that battle with much of his base. He will not win that battle with the American people. What the American people will look at is what's in the report. And his base won't won't be able to ignore what's in the report either. We don't know what's in the report. So um, has has Mueller been injured? Yes, but the report is the heart of it. The guts, the content of that report, is what ultimately is going to matter here. It's going to matter to population, to Republicans, to the press, to the world, um, and uh, and we don't know what's there. Um, so it, at the margins. Undercutting Mueller, I suppose, is helpful to the president, even though it's disgusting. It seems just wrong. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't softball here uh, that's being played. But but uh, we have to see the report. Uh, Dan Lipner, is, is there legal exposure for Paul Manafort? Not, I mean, obviously he's got to face two different court hearings, one in Virginia and then the case in the District of Columbia. But is there additional legal exposure for Paul Manafort at a state level that could prevent a uh, possible pardon being even effective to keeping him out of jail? I mean, as Alan has correctly stated, absolutely. I mean, just the money side of it alone is, an, is a bit of exposure. But the real question we need to ask is, what's worse than taking a deal? And now, since we do live in a in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty, so as a lawyer, I need to say that out loud. But also, <laughs> the numbers on federal prosecuting federal prosecutor success suggest that Mueller has him. So the question question is, what's worse? So it might just be. All of Manafort's assets are gone. And based on statutes, both state 
and federal, and I am not an expert on either Virginia, New York State, or wherever else Manafort might have assets sitting that states could go after, that could be enough for him to be sitting on all of this and praying to be found innocent because he'd rather roll the dice downstream because after the feds are done, there will be state cases brought regardless of innocence and guilt because double jeopardy does not attach. That's why the pardon doesn't work. So that could be part of it, as well as the other issues at play that could be even larger that affect the president. That's to be seen. Interesting. Remember, let that be the last remember word. Also, gonna... Remember also, remember, just one Go. last thought on Mueller. Remember Mueller, Mueller he, he wants convictions here, but he also has to be credible. The, the, the charges against, uh, uh, against Manafort on the financial side are significant. He's charged with laundering and not reporting for tax reasons tens of millions of dollars. So for Mueller to walk away from a pretty heavy penalty relating to those uh, allegations means he'd have to get a lot. We don't know what Manafort's got to give. He's certainly got something, but he may not have much and, 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 and very likely not enough to make it worthwhile for Mueller to maintain his own credibility by sort of, of, of <laughs> tossing the charges on Manafort well, I mean, that presumably I mean, look, the bottom... would cause him to you know, disgorge um, most of his assets and, 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 and spend some time in jail. Well, Mueller, I mean, Manafort's 60, 69 years old or so. And so even for him to, to accept like one felony charge and some jail time is probably going to mean oh. half a dozen years or more, as well as Mo- losing most Look, of his, most let, of his money. Be, so, Alan, let's be, Alan, let's be clear about this. Paul Manafort doesn't has seen his last day outside of a jail room or outside of a jail cell. He spends the rest of his life in a prison. There's, well, I don't know about that, but 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 he's you know he's old enough that if he spends ten years, you know, it's probably half his lifetime or more. That Alan, Alan, and this so, is just he's looking at he's looking at he's looking at least fifty years just on the Virginia case. No, no, no. It, I mean, technically, yes. Practically, no. But I mean, but, but, I mean, Mueller, I mean yeah. Mueller's Mueller's got to to cop a plea. He's got to he's got to plead. He's got to give up assets. He's got to give up useful information, and he's got to serve some prison time. And 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 he's got to make it worthwhile to Mueller to even cut that kind of a deal. Yeah, but he's um, got to what the evidence appears to be. He's still got to be offered a deal. Well, well, he, no, he, he, right. we we don't know he hasn't a, been offered a deal. I'll tell you, he, I, I would argue don't he know. probably has been offered a deal and just didn't take it. But that's something we can't know until this is all over. Probably several years after that. But I'm yeah. I cannot imagine a federal prosecutor did not say, "Listen, we can make sure." Uh, I believe his daughter's property could have been off limits. Uh, for prosecution or for assets they, they choose to seize, should there be a, a finding of guilt. I can't imagine that wasn't put on the table. So, well, again, his wife he's, that he's, he's rolling the dice about. on something. She, hey, by, by the I way, mean, his, by the way, his, just point of clarification, uh, our fact checker, our associate producer, Audrey Howerton, has come back. 
there are 18 charges with a total sentence of possibly 305 years. So technically speaking, no, no, no. 50 years was even a break for him. No, 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 no. You can't say that, Justin. You have to go. I'm sorry. You've got to look at the history of how this stuff normally plays out. Um, and and it's serious time. It may well be lifetime, depending. But that's the problem with saying it's 300 years. So 50 is a good number. But but everything I've read is that that you know he's 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 looking at at something that would constitute most of the rest of his life, um, right? If not all of it. So yeah. so um, he's he's 69 years old. 10 years, if he got that, would would be. You know, likely in that I think prison time is pretty hard on people. So it, it, you know, we don't we can we can we can argue about that, but we can't anyway. know for for a fact that that he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. He's he's really jammed up. He's caught in a yeah, rock on a hard place. We don't know what he's got to to give up, and we don't know what his chances are for a pardon. But he may have. To, I, he's got to roll the dice now in a big way. Oh yeah. Bottom, well, bottom line, line that off jacket won't look right. <laughs> well, we were going to go to break, but we've blown through that. So real quickly, let's go over a couple of lightning round items here real quick. Uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you. The president's now threatened to do a government shutdown on based on funding for his border wall. Uh, a lot of a lot of senators on the uh, a lot of senators on the Hill have come back slamming the president for this. Uh, they've all said that this is a bad idea, and anytime we have a uh, government shutdown, it usually backfires on the Republicans. Is is the president going to hold true to this? Does he have enough political uh, chips to cash in on this? Well, so it doesn't matter if we think he does, if he if he thinks he does. Um, I'm do- I'm thinking there won't be a shutdown. I'm thinking he loves to talk tough. He doesn't. He hates to be put into a corner. He hates people to tell him, "No, you can't do this." He hates it when Mitch McConnell says there will not be a shutdown. Um, I don't think there'll be a shutdown because I think that at the end of the day, reason will will come to be. He's using it for leverage. But with him, you never know. He could he could simply say, "I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it." What it does do right at the moment is it provides an enormous amount of incentive and pressure for the Congress to get as much of the appropriating done as they possibly can prior to September 30th um, when, when they have to make decision about, about the future. I, you, never, you don't know with this guy. He, he has the power. So it's not a matter of having enough chips. He's got the power. He can refuse to sign a law and create holy havoc. And most of us who've been around a while have seen how that how that has worked out in the past right. for right. for 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 republicans um and <laughs> here for the the party in power um uh, it 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 it's the kind of thing that would say to democrats democratic candidates really these guys control government and now we're shutting I down mean, national parks stopping veterans checks closing you know whatever gets gets closed or stopped or shut down Time for a change, folks. Here's your chance. Yeah, but, I mean, Dan Lipner, Alan brings up a very valid point, is uh, the Democrats have got to be asking themselves, how are we losing to this group 
when you've got Republicans in control of the Senate, the House, and the White House, and they still are threatening a government shutdown on their own party. Does the president know the game of chicken he's playing? And is it gutsy enough that, as we've seen the case with Congress up till now, they'll fold like cheap suits? Let's be clear. The Republicans will fold like cheap suits on things where they're scared of the base. The real question is how bipartisan any of these spending bills have been. Uh, and I don't know those headcounts based on the committee structures uh, of things that are, are working their way through Congress at the moment. I don't know if anyone else on the show can answer that question. But if it's bipartisan, not only if the president chooses to go down this route, route um, which I don't think he is uh, per Allen's statement because I don't – I think like many bullies, the president uh, can't really stand up to a fight. Uh, he's a coward at heart. But should it go go forward, if it's a bipartisan series of spending bills that are going through, he'll get overridden. And in which case, that's one hell of a punch in the nose from his own party as well as the Democrats, in which case the strength of the Donald is in question far beyond simply the budget fights that he's putting out there for this stupid wall. Let's move on to the next subject here because we've got four of them we've got to cover real quick. Uh, Also last week it was announced, or it should be the week before, it was surprisingly announced that uh, the White House had in fact invited Russian President Vladimir Putin to a second summit to have happened here within the next few weeks or so. Uh, It has since been announced that that has been uh, set back till according to one source in the administration, after the Mueller thing settles. Uh, Laura Chavez, is is the White House that tone deaf to the reality of most of his own party? A majority of America still believe that Russia is an adversary, not a close friend we invite over for barbecue? Uh, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, the slightly longer answer is yes, because he, I think Trump feels like they're getting, he's getting so much pushback, he needs to push back even more. He's decided this is where he's going to dig in his heels. I mean, he was talking about the Russians collaborating with uh, the, Mueller, or the Mueller investigation. I mean, there were some truly crazy ideas going around, and he was just letting it ride. If he took the same approach to Kim Jong-un, and now he's taking a similar approach with Iran, where, he, where there are no actual, um, no, um, sorry, I've lost the word, uh, no, like, uh, pre-laid out ideas for any sort of meeting. This is one of those things where I think he's going to genuinely dig in his heels. He wants another, he respects Putin, he likes him, he sees them as cut from, the, cut from a similar cloth, I should say. Um, and I think this is one of those things that he really wants to be, um, affiliated with this strongman type character, um, even in just the way he sees Russia as a country and its organization, its, its respect for its leader in, you know, certain circles. Uh, he wants that. So he thinks the closer he can get to that, maybe it'll rub off a little bit. Uh, that being said, the idea of having uh, Putin in the White House to so many people is bonkers. 
Like, there's no other word that you can say without getting beeped out uh, other than bonkers for what it would mean to have Vladimir Putin in the White House talking with the U.S. president. It legitimizes so much more than have, than when they were in Helsinki. It is truly tone deaf, but I think it's – but this administration hasn't been known for its, you know, deft hand when it comes to approaching things with a per- politically correct um, – perspective. Dan Lipner, you know, Laura Chavez brought up the fact that the president also said that he would meet with Iranian President Rouhani and do it without any sort of predetermined conditions. It's something that, uh, as of this morning, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had to walk back. Uh, How big of the disconnect does there have to be for uh, the State Department just to walk into the Oval Office saying, look, you got to stop. Well, first let me say I think the, the Donald would love to have borscht at a traditional uh, American barbecue because who wouldn't? Um, <laughs> but that, that said, the Iranians have a far stronger hand to play than the North Koreans. The North Korean economy is based – almost entirely on exporting weapons um, as far as trade goes. The only thing they, get, they, they got to bargain with, and we still got nothing for the, the Donald meeting with, with the North Koreans. However, the Iranians, the pulling out of the nuclear deal with Iran, as we did, everyone else did not. And one of those notable exceptions that occurred is the Europeans are still there, and the Iranians have wanted to buy airplanes for a while, and they're buying Airbus instead of Boeing. That's really helpful to the U.S. economy. So, yeah, going to sitting down with the Iranians is interesting. However, if the United States doesn't have allies, which the president has managed to alienate most of ours, uh, Outside of the Iran nuclear deal and within the Iran nuclear deal, we are standing alone. So there's no downside for the Iranians to, to meet with with uh, with the Donald. And when when the president walks out of that with a bigger nothing burger than he did with North Korea, which is entirely possible, the North the Iranians look even stronger and we look even weaker. So there is a long term cost. Uh, for the U.S. taking that action if the president chooses to act alone. That said, he's also proven to not listen to anyone other than himself. Alan Moore, go ahead. Yeah, two things. One, Barack Obama, back when he was running for office uh, uh, the first time, uh, said that he would sit down with the Iranians and and, and meet with them without precondition. Um, He was ridiculed particularly by by Republicans and by his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Um, he won that round. Uh, I, just rem- I just remind everybody of that for historical perspective. With regard right. to Dan's comment, Dan's comment about how, how Iran doesn't have anything to lose and it's buying all these planes, the value of Iran's currency since the U.S. ended the Iran deal has declined 50%. It is worth half what it was previously. Its economy is, I would agree, stronger than North Korea's, 
but it is not going gangbusters. And the U.S. seems hell-bent on interfering with its ability to export oil. Um, and the Europeans are not going to are not going to fight that. I mean, this is a really dangerous situation. We all I was as critical as anybody at the president's precipitous way of getting out of uh, of the Iran deal. There was no plan B. There was not any great logic to it. There were no advanced conversations. There was no bringing in the allies. It was a crazy thing to do. But I just remind remind everybody what's happened since but, this. Yeah, so but the, Al, the Iranian Al, me, economy just, is in deep yeah, But Alan, let me jump in on this. That's already happening. The question is, what do they have to lose by meeting? And the Iranians well, have well, no, gained, they, but nothing to lose. I'm not saying... No, no, but you were, you were Carrick, talking about how great they're doing and how they're going to buy all these Airbuses. And I'm thinking, yeah, with twice the currency as before, they're trying to be able to figure out how to continue to sell yeah, but, oil. But, but Alan, Alan let, me, let me but, remind you, yeah. let me remind you that the sanctions we talk about, you know, the, the sanctions that the president talks about are sanctions that were in, that were uh, in, that were um, enforced by all of our allies. We are now, as a result of us pulling out of the JCOP, is we are now seeing a crack in that wall where, you know what? If America is going to act on its own, and, we've, and we have been instituting our own sanctions, i.e. Germany, the UK, France, Italy, all of NATO, and EU countries, if they're going to go out on their own, well, then you know what? If Iran's playing by the rules, we're going to engage in trade. You know what? If I'm China and I'm Europe, I'm saying, you know what? Screw you, White House. We'll make money off of this. We'll make the deals, and you'll still be on the outside looking in. Just, to me, Justin, I think Justin, it's – the reason, the reason their currency has lost half of its value is because the rest of the world um, needs the U.S. to make oil sales work. It all has to do with the, with the international banking system, the role of the U.S., and so on. I, I understood. Not they, understood. They, it, no, I'm just saying you can't – you 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 can't remove the U.S. from the equation and have everybody else pick up the slack. It, 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 don't get me wrong. I think the suggestion of a meeting without preconditions is nuts. And then poor old Pompeo is out there saying, "Well, no, 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 no. They they've got to do, make some moves here on human rights and 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 over there uh, uh, on on uh, on their nuclear program and so on." Um, and 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 it it puts it it makes us look. It makes us look stupid uh, in the eyes of uh, of critics, of everybody, professionals in the U.S., in Europe, in in Asia, and so on. Um, and and the, I, I don't think the Iranians are going that, that that Rouhani is going to get the chance to uh, to to have a a one on one with 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 the president when all is said and done. It's crazy for him to say this stuff. He does this again. And again and again, and then God forbid he has a one-on-one meeting with Putin for two hours, and nobody's in there, and we still don't know what what happened there. Um, uh, and and conversations with with uh, with the North Koreans, where he comes out and say, "All right, everybody, we've denu- we've got a, we've agreed to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula," and uh, and all the evidence of the, the of last few days is, you know, they did a few things over here, but they're building up over there. No one knows what the plan is. There's no timetable. There's no 
back and forth. You do this and we'll do that. All the things you need for di- diplomatic um, relationships. Alan Moore, I want to ask you. Alan Moore, I want to ask you the one question. Normally work. I want to ask you one question, and I asked you this question yeah. before, and you got upset at me when I asked this question. And I'm going to say it with all the evidence presented, especially over the past couple of days, did the U.S. get played by North Korea? I don't remember getting upset with you for that. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we got played. Most of us expected to happen what did happen. Did the president get played? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I'm not, I don't think the president is the United States. Um, and I don't, and I think you get played for a moment, but then we go back to the status quo ante and, you know, they're beefing up their ICBM uh, c- capacities again. Um, the, they the, the the mobile, sees everything Alan, as a, they, as a, Alan, as a real part, estate deal. They parked a mobile launcher outside of their manufacturing plant as if it was an RV at a park. They, it was almost like they said, look here. They had a bright blue roof next to a mobile launcher. It's a big finger to the U.S. We have no status there anymore. How, well, how, how do we negotiate this, this out? Well, I, I don't know how we negotiate with them, but I'll, I'll simply remind you that, you know, critic as I have been and will always be, I think, about how this president operates in, in, in North Korea and elsewhere. I'll simply remind you that, that they have not launched – any uh, ICBM-type missiles for eight or nine months. They have not had any additional nuclear tests. Those are positives. Are they dispositive of the situation? Are they reflective of a, of a, of a new world, a new arrangement of a denuclearized North Korea? Absolutely not, but they're a positive. We took the tension down from, you know, a nine out of on a scale of one to ten down to a five or six. I don't know where it'll be in three months from now. I don't like the trend lines, but I'm very glad that, uh, that they have held back on the kinds of highly provocative behavior that, that they were uh, pursuing just a year ago on a monthly basis. So Sharma, do you, Sharma, do you agree with Alan? Sorry, can you, Sharma? which, which, which part of Alan's statement? <laughs> Any of it. <laughs> Go ahead, Sharmila. Sharmila, you know, he wants me to say we got played, and I'm just not prepared to say we, that America got, played. got played. I don't like yeah, what happened. I, I mean, I, I, I do somewhat agree with Alan that the, that the president certainly came out of it looking a bit foolish. Uh, obviously, you know, of course, his Singapore summit pales in comparison to his Helsinki summit. But, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that the U.S. got played when you think about the fact that, you know, all the intelligence officials prior to the summit were telling the president that, look, North Korea has played this, you know, we've gone down this road before. They will make a bunch of promises and they'll break them all and they will continue their nuclear development. The president didn't believe them. And then lo and behold, the intelligence agencies were right. So in that sense, I I agree with Alan that the president might have gotten duped and sort of, you know, went on this trip for for very little payoff. But did the U.S. get played? And is the U.S. in a substantially worse position now than it was prior to Singapore? I don't think so. Really? Dan Lipner, you agree with that? 
point. I, I'm not certain I, I caught that point. Don't be suckered. Don't be suckered, Dan. By, by, <laughs> by, 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 don't be suckered by, by Justin trying to browbeat you into saying something you don't believe. Yo, come on. He believes that we got played. Come on. I, 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 I believe the president is getting played by everyone internationally consistently with his own stupid actions, and the international community is responding exactly with what they're seeing in the White House. I think they know what they got. They think it's unfortunate in some cases from our allies, from our adversaries. They think they are being dealt a winning hand. Wow. Okay. I'm going to let that be the last word real quick. Uh, Hey, you know what? By the way, um, in case you did not hear the breaking news coming out of the White House, uh, it is being reported by NBC and the Wall Street Journal that uh, Chief of Staff uh, John Kelly has been asked by President Trump, and he has since accepted to stay on as Chief of Staff until the 2020 election, the 2020 election. Now, whether that actually happens or not, but I'm officially now, Audrey Howerton, are you on the phone with us? I am. Audrey? I am. Okay. Hello. Audrey, I am, uh, folks, our associate producer, Audrey Howerton, in an undisclosed location somewhere in Tennessee. Uh, Audrey, (laughs) I am now officially taking John Kelly out of the parachute pool until Bullshit. 2020. You can't do that. Uh, why not? He said publicly he you could have say. Who? Fine. He, he, he can still get fired. That could be anything. <laughs> fine. I think I he can will stay in the country. All right. Fine. I will leave him in. Fine. <laughs> so, God. Talk about, talk about getting played. Uh, Audrey, would you please go over... <laughs> the results of our last week's parachute pool. So we actually didn't do results last week because we had a very short show. So everybody right. is staying from where they were two weeks ago for last week. So and would you remind us? Sharmila had Sean Lawler. Ken had John Kelly. Dan had Sarah Huckabee. Alan had Jeff Sessions from possibly a way longer than two weeks ago. Laura, you had John Huntsman and Justin Dan Coates. Okay, there were no winners, obviously, this week. There were not. So, we are going to go back. You can uh, either stay with who you got or pick somebody else. Uh, Alan, since it is your first week back, we'll give you the we'll give you the tee box. Uh, who's your parachute pool this week? Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. Donald Donald Trump with Rudy Giuliani and, and and Michael Cohen has showed that his his ability to pick winning lawyers uh, what a string he's on and I think that Mike Giuliani has become such a liability by being a crazy person and saying total nonsense that's embarrassing to the president it's the end for Giuliani that's awesome Laura Chavez Laura Chavez I am going to. Throw a little more support to the senator from my home state of Illinois. Dick Durbin had a plea for Kirsten Nielsen to step down, so hopefully she's on the chopping block next. You're saying Kirsten Nielsen, okay. Yes. Uh, Dan Lipner? Uh, first, let me say President Pence will very much enjoy John Kelly sticking around. 
but I'm going to stick with Daryl Huckabee Sanders. Okay. And uh, Sharmila Achari? I'm going to take a moonshot and say Robert Mueller. Whoa. Ooh. Ooh. Interesting. Uh, by the Where way, we did not mention you know, you know. By, by the way, by the way, we we uh, does anybody think that the articles of impeachment against Rod Rosenstein are going to go anywhere? I, I collectively nope. think no, but no, 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 yeah, okay, negative. Okay, yeah, I kind of figured that. That's why we didn't bring it up, but we should mention it though. It's funny. Um, the hearings uh, would be awesome though. What's that? The hearings for the impeachment would be awesome. Yes. <laughs> um, so here's my pick. Uh, I'm going to say Raj Shaw, the deputy communications boss. I think he's out. He's got to go. He's so much better than this. Okay. With that being said, what's that? Who isn't better than this? Raj Shaw is better than, he's a really good comms guy. Well, relatively speaking. But with that being said, on behalf of our long lost brethren, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, uh, Sharma Achari, Laura Chavez, and, of course, our always awesome associate producer, Audrey Howerton, uh, who, by the way, is the author of Audrey, you've been posting every day, right? I just, in fact, posted a few moments ago. Okay. Follow, you can follow Audrey's comments in our end-of-the-day recap of political events from the cutting room floor at backroompolitics.org, which means that you can follow us on our website, backroompolitics.org. You can also follow us on our Twitter account at backroompolitics. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. You can also follow us on uh, you can also follow us on our uh, podcast. You can download today's show and every other show as a podcast on Google Podcasts, iTunes, uh, TuneIn Radio, and just any other source where you get your downloaded podcasts for free. Uh, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Block Talk Radio. Have a great week, America. Take care. This is Backroom Politics.